Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I am your host, Charlie Shrem. You're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, where together twice a week, we get to dive deep, almost five years now, during this show with some of Bitcoin OGs, crypto's most influential leaders, people who are really leading the charge, building out the companies, leading these really cool projects into the next wave. Like we see so much going on in, in Bitcoin and crypto today, but we only see like what the news, the mass media reports in the news come to the show, you find out what's really going on. I'm really excited. We have my friend David Schwett on the show today. When we met back in 2019, he was the Chief Information Security Officer at Galaxy Digital. Previously, you were at BNY Mellon, and now you're the Chief Operating Officer at Halburn. And for those who don't know, Halburn is one of the largest security companies in our industry. They do some of the largest audits of the most major blockchains and, and some of the decentralized applications that you're probably using right now have probably been audited or having gone through some sort of the Halburn process. And, and David, thank you. That's why it's so much fun. You probably have the best job because you work and you get to poke holes, not only from a technical level, but you also have to understand the social engineering side of these blockchains and how, where the holes are and things like that. It's, you know, it's funny. What, what got me into crypto was really, was exactly that. It was the challenge. It wasn't a rinse and repeat of what we've been seeing, you know, from an information security perspective over the last 20 to 30 years. These were new types of attack vectors. These are some of the more sophisticated threat actors that we've seen. Because at the end of the day, you know, this is like robbing a bank. Their bare assets, whoever's holding them is actually holding, you know, the, the end result. And, you know, for somebody like myself and some of the other really talented cybersecurity professionals in the space, they all were gravitating towards this new world because of the challenges, because of the new type of attack vectors. It was, you know, again, no, no policy. There was no framework that we could just quickly adopt. And, you know, we really had to start thinking back to our roots, uh, cybersecurity professionals. So looking back on 2023, you and I have been in Bitcoin and crypto our whole lives, very, very long time. But I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I still lose money from different hacks or different random stuff. Just the other day, I ended up trying to use a swap protocol, but I used the wrong one. It was a scam protocol and I lost all oh, it was like a thousand dollars, but it's gone because because I just went to a link through Google and I was fished through. So, I mean, it's still crazy out there in the crypto world. It is. I think it's a combination of a couple of different things. I think, you know, number one is it's not easy to use crypto much as even like yourselves, people that have been in the space, you know, OG since the beginning, it, the UX of it is not, it's not easy to use. There's no point and click, let me just log on to a portal and let me just access this particular DEX or DeFi protocol. So I think the usability in the UX needs to be improved somewhat. The way that we are interacting with different applications, if you will, are through websites and websites can be fished and impersonated. And then the lore of here's a new protocol and here's larger APY, the yield is higher, you know, faster transaction speeds. So I think it's this jump for, you know, how can we make more money? And then there's the ability for threat actors to start impersonating different websites, which is really attracting people. Even the NFT drops. You have to connect your wallet, be the first thousand people to connect and, you know, sign the transaction. So there's this like sense of urgency in order to execute a transaction, which gets a lot of people to lower their guard. So are you working on defensive measures or do you think there, there are solutions to these problems that on like the protocol level? There's definitely opportunities, multiple layers of the stack. And I think banks are, you know, the, the best place in the world. But if you borrow some of the methodologies that banks implement, it's a defense in depth. But whenever I give panel talks or keynotes, I love to dissect the Axie Infinity Ronin hack, which is, you know, hailed as one of the more sophisticated, you know, attacks in our, in our industry. $622 million was stolen. But if you look at the attack path that the attack that the threat actor took, which in this case was nation state, North Korea, Lazarus Group, 
there were so many points in which it would have failed in its tracks if this was an attack on a back with the same attack vector. What happened so there? So what happened there, it, it was is really one of the more interesting ones. It starts off with a fairly sophisticated social engineering attack where the threat actors, they created a fake profile on LinkedIn and they impersonated somebody uh, from Coinbase. So they spent the time to generate the profile connected with probably, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred people within Coinbase just to create that air of credibility oh within this God. profile out of the whole history, reached out to a developer, told them that they'd like to interview them for a position within the organization, actually went through as either three or five different Zoom interviews, you know, video interviews no. with was interviewed, told them that he got the job offer, sent the offer letter, opened it up, and it was an infected PDF, and then they owned his machine. Oh my God, that's so brilliant. It is, right? <laughs> to take the yep. time, you sit there and as a hacker, you come up with ideas like that, right? And, and, and you probably, you understand everything what the hacker just did. You probably yourself could have sat in a room with your friends and said, hey, this would be a, an attack vector, right? And there's no way that Coinbase could have really prevented that. But what, like, it's like almost like you have to understand the hacker themselves, like what drives them to yep. go because I mean it's a lot of money and a lot of crypto hackers do get away I guess right yeah well I mean in this case it was 622 million dollars I mean like you know again one of the blessings and the curses of of blockchain is everything's transparent so you know once you have those wallet addresses you can see the treasury of all these different projects and funds and games and you know if you're looking at 620 some odd million dollars that's able to be stolen that's going to be a target and it's worth you know putting together that oceans 11 type of you know attack path vector to go after them that same attack vector was actually just recently used this year I forget the name of the project where they did the same thing they they did a whole social engineering got somebody to open up a pdf and then own that particular person's machine and this one actually wasn't even a hack. This one was more interesting. They owned the infrastructure internally within this project, and they were able to get access to the API key for their particular custodian. They were actually able to initiate a transaction, and the transaction was actually signed, executed, and sent out from the custodian because it was an authorized transaction because they were using the client's API. So this one, they didn't even steal private keys. This one was just, let me initiate a transaction that went out and was approved from the policy. It's so interesting how this happens. And I could ask you a question, whereas you would say, well, Charlie, as long as all the money can be tracked, what does it matter? Why would they care who the hacker is? But at the end of the day, in a situation like the Lazarus Group, they don't care that everyone knows who they are. They just want to do the hacking, get the money, and then they'll figure out their own ways to cash out that Bitcoin or whatever crypto they're stealing. Whereas that hacker who you talked about with Coinbase and those other situations, they care about hiding their identity. We figure out, you know, one time they do a cash out or they make a mistake, then you can track that person down. But how do we stop hacks in a situation like Lazarus where they don't care? We figure it out. And then like you just said, you know, it's them. It's a great question. And I think it really calls attention to what I think is one of the one of the biggest fundamental challenges that we're seeing right now is you have enterprise organizations and you have banks where they have the budget. They have the ability to really, from a defense in depth, stand up. You know, one of the things interesting that a bank has is you have your technology function, you have your information security function, but then you also have what's called line one risk, line two risk, line three risk, and you have your external regulators and auditors. So you have like, in theory, you know, five or six different sets of departments and eyes and organizations looking at a particular control environment. But the problem is there's not a lot of Web3 or crypto talent in a lot of these large enterprise or banks. It was not to say that they don't have it. 
there might be a sprinkling of people that sure. really understand the ecosystem, but they're, you know, very, very new to this environment and they don't fully understand it. You know, just because they can't hold crypto necessarily, they can't test it. It's really hard within a bank to even hold crypto for testing purposes because it has to get approved by legal and from, you know, different committees. But then on the other side of it, when you have amazing, amazing developers that are like true believers and, you know, they OGs in the space and like they just have these amazing ideas on how to build, but they're getting like a $3 million check to build an MVP. And then here's another $7 yeah. million for your bridge round. They're not given the time to really build out a, a really mature control environment, information security department. So they're not able to build things to the level that a bank should be building. So it's like, I wish I could just kind of take both worlds and kind of mesh them together and you would have really mature, secure solutions. What if there was like more external pen testing, but there's no way these comp these banks and these larger institutions, they won't, they, you it can't, they can't have external people come in and, and try to help them out at all. That's, and that's kind of like the biggest problem. But you were saying earlier, before you told the story, that as an industry, we how can we fix these problems? I think I think it comes also from the users of the of the system. You know, it's it's demand better, you know, demand security, demand risk management, you know, look at the maturity of a project. I've used the term like stop chasing yield, like just because one project is, you know, giving like a couple of bips more than another project. Yeah, listen, we're all in this in some respects to make a buck. And in some respects, this is an investment strategy. But you have to like ask yourself, like, where are those extra basis points coming from? It's either coming from maybe we're lack of spending in a certain area. You know, projects should be using security potentially as a differentiator, you know, trade on my platform because it's more secure. That's one way of doing it. You know, the, the other way really is to there's a lot of best practices that I think a lot of projects just don't seem to take on. And a lot of it is I'll fix it later type of a mentality. Like what? I was talking to a project about a year or two ago and they came over to talk to us at Elborn and they said, you know, like, you know, smart contract auditing, et cetera. And then the answer back was, we'll reach out to you after we get traction with the project because, you know, then then we'll look at security. And I'm like, listen, even if you don't go with us, just do me a favor, go with somebody because that's not the right approach to look at security. You know, don't look at security afterwards because number one, you're having you're launching an insecure product. And two, security really should be thought about something that's foundational to the project you're building. Like this is cryptographic. This is private and public keys. This is as technical as you can get the product in and of itself is technology which should should be secure. It's really, really, really interesting that you say that and a lot of people simply can't afford it or they don't want to take the time. We invested in a company that's still kind of secret like a year ago and they called Yokai. And what they're doing is they're building out like a, a platform that allows, because there are a lot of different ways that you can go. You can go to GitHub, you, there's Microsoft. There's a lot of ways to do like where you would host your project, but there aren't developers out there who can come in there. It's like a very fractured world, a siloed where you have developers that can come in and try to do pen testing and, and offer a certain amount of money to do it for certain things. Kind of like more of like a decentralized version of having people come to your company and, and you paying a bounty directly. So here you have people almost can bid on doing it for you. And if you have a token, theoretically for your project, you could offer your token as like a payment for these you know, white hat hackers, if you will, that would come in and, and do that. So I think there's a lot that needs to happen. But it's interesting because I'll be honest with you, I think how we compute is changing. And also like you have Apple putting out the Apple Vision Pro soon. You have all these VR headsets. And I know that wearables were still very early out and a lot of people really don't think that we're going to move away from like the browser experience that even you and I are working on now. But Web3 is coming. And so like 
do you see any future style apps like maybe like you know everyone's using metamask now but the way we engage with crypto do you think that's going to change in any way I do. I think in order to get like really widespread adoption, I think the crypto portion of it will be somewhat transparent, which it should be in some respect. Like the, you know, in order to get the the non, you know, crypto native people onto the platform, they don't want to have to connect a ledger wallet. They don't have to even think about what is the concept of signing. Like yeah. all of that should be as transparent to that user as possible in order to really engage in the ecosystem. Like the the beauty and benefit of decentralized identity and ownership of assets, that's the value add. It's not the ledger. It's not the private key. It's not the signing. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have right now is this shouting, you know, with their fist up the world of not your keys, not your crypto. But the reality is not a lot of people are skilled enough to really hold crypto by themselves. We don't have a solution yet, though. Like we just went through the, no. we, you know, where there's a bull market maybe coming. Everyone's excited. I don't want to see a bull market come until we have like the next wave of applications that people will use because my friend who tried to use crypto a couple of years ago, there's nothing changed for him to, to use crypto now. It's still as hard. I mean, there's some better applications. Maybe I'm being a little bit difficult, but he's going to go and buy GBTC just because it's easier for him. Yeah, everyone's going to use ETFs and maybe that's cool, but I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know what the next, we need some sort of like, really breakthrough in our technology before we before we get to that bull market. And I don't know what that is yet. It makes me sad. Yeah. And I think, you know, it comes down to wallets, right? Like, you know, you have two classes of wallets. You have the free wallets and then you have the, the paid ones. And I think that in order for to have mass adoption, you have to have enterprise quality from a UX perspective, That's a great you know, wallets, but, but no cost, right? But then the problem is... Why does is, no one do that? Yeah. I mean, there are definitely a couple of projects that are like kind of working that angle. Gasless. You know, I'm sorry. Like a gasless transaction. Well, yeah, well, definitely everything. gasless. I mean, that's the other problem too. Is you know, if you want to interact, you know, now I have to pay fees in order just to even you know touch this. So definitely gasless transactions, I think, are are definitely going to help. But also like that usability of you know Im embedding wallets into applications or just having like a Venmo, PayPal, Cash App type of app that is just very easy to interact with. Yeah. You know, different DApps and and to hold crypto. But don't charge the user for that wallet. So, you know, you have to be able to have that funding of, of a PayPal Venmo to build that. But I think there's revenue models on the other side of it. It's just like PayPal and Venmo and Cash App make money on the payment side of it. You could do the same thing with, with crypto wallets. I think there's, there's somewhat of a lack of like business sense in some respect to a lot of the projects. A lot of the projects are just brilliant developers that have really great ideas, but they, they're lacking that go-to-market strategy. The reason is, in my opinion, is that we're, there's still no regulatory clarity. There's no regulatory clarity. How cool would it be if there was a DeFi protocol that had a token that paid you a piece of revenue, but on the bottom of that website said, this is a SEC registered crypto DeFi. Pro we just don't have that. And so yep. my friend is not going to ever trust and PayPal will never list that token. But how cool would that be? That could be a killer application for crypto. If you can have real revenue sharing tokens of all sorts of businesses that can register with the SEC and regular normies can hold them. Oh, 100%. I mean, like I just came back from Fireblock Spark and there was some great discussions on just like, you know, loyalty points and reward points. And being Another able example. to and being able to trade them like, hey, I don't need my Starbucks reward There's... points, but someone else has Delta and we can swap them. I mean, that's that's brilliant. That's a killer application. And don't you think that American Express and Delta themselves would love to do that? They already know crypto well enough. So do you think 2024, I mean, you're, you guys have like 
a large organization, do you think there'll be some some more regulatory clarity, maybe election cycle, maybe the SEC approving like ETFs? Will that kind of make things better? Could we ever see what we're talking about right now? I, I do. I, I think we're headed there. I think probably, in my opinion, more towards the end of 2024, I think we're going to see regulatory clarity, whether it's through actual legislation or whether it's through, unfortunately, litigation. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you That's know, you know Ripple led the way and, you know, you have Grayscale. So I think we're going to start to see it. You know, there's there's a big push because we're, we are losing jobs. We are losing mindshare, you know, whether it's Mika in the EU or you have, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong. I mean, they're all very, very in Dubai. They're all super Bermuda. Yeah. You know, you have all these super, super, super friendly environments that are just attracting talent, attracting people. They're yeah. moving out of the country. There's a perfect example of a company called Meanwhile. We had them on the show and uh, there was just an announcement that they, they're raising like $100 million. He didn't even tell me that. Like I had them on the show the day before. But uh, really cool company. They're doing like life insurance and denominated in Bitcoin. But what's really cool about it is that, you know, he's regulated by the Bermuda Monetary Authority. You just said Bermuda. But he can't offer the yield on the other side. He would be a perfect organization where he's like, Charlie, I can offer a lot of percentage points to anyone and it's all Bitcoin denominated, but like there's no regulatory clarity on the other side. But that would be a perfect, I would hold that token if he ever did one. Yeah, 100%. Like actually at Spark, I was talking to another project where they're talking about real-time yield in certain countries where like, you know, having, you know, holding on to something for three, four days, believe it or not, means a lot to them to then be able to liquidate and earn that interest in over that three-day period. What do you mean? So like, you know, like right now, like, you know, you have money sitting in a bank. If you pull it out, you're not necessarily going to get like three days worth of interest or four days worth of interest. But this is like a way for them to lock funds up and, you know, get three days worth of yield and be able to pull it out. So it's like access to real time. You're staking, like instead of like waiting for the next epoch, they'll be able to pull out. So it's, you know, offering the ability for like real time recognition of value as opposed to like traditional markets today, where there has to be you know, some period of time in which you're waiting for interest to be calculated, et cetera, or terms and conditions of how long you have to hold a particular product before you can earn interest. That would be so cool. Like the way a treasury works right now, you can choose your four week treasury and it's a, and then they pull out. So if you do a hundred thousand dollar treasury and it's at like 5%, they only pull out that like certain amount of money and leave you whatever is left for interest. And I like how that system works. Uh, especially if you do it for like, imagine if you did it for like a million dollars or even $10 million, you can then say to the government, like, hey, give me my money back four weeks later, but now you're sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars of interest. Yep. If you can do that with other types of assets, that would be really cool too. What's What was this, an accelerator? Fireblocks is a is a big custodial company, technology company. Yeah, so this was just so that the event from Fireblocks was, you know, all of their customers and partners. So these are just, you know, a lot of projects use Fireblocks as their, yeah. you know, custodial provider or backend infrastructure. So this is a particular project that Fireblocks is their custodian and, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're offering services out to, you know, the different layer ones. That sounds awesome. It sounds like maybe I'm a little bit critical of the industry, but it sounds like the businesses are there. The developers have good ideas. They have the product markets, but we haven't seen anything like really groundbreaking come out in the last like year or so just because the regula- regulations aren't there yet. I mean, we saw like Frentech, but that existed outside of yep. all regulations completely. And that was a dud because those people almost like stayed anonymous. And once it got so big, they got scared. I follow all the Frentech founders on Twitter and they all went through like nervous breakdowns from anxiety. Right. Now they're they're yep. tweeting about, you know, you have to be grateful in life. I've been on crypto Twitter so long. I know what, what they're going through in the real yeah. world. <laughs> like, you have to be grateful right now. And, you know, I'm going to take a break and stuff like that. 
Thanks for coming on the show today. Happy Friday. Yeah, no, it was definitely great to see you again. Really excited for you and for what you got going on. And I hope we can talk again soon and, and meet up again in the future. Absolutely. Appreciate it. I wanted to introduce you to our guest Ido on the show today. His company, BlockAid, is a phenomenal cybersecurity startup that raised $30 million just very recently. They're one of the top companies in the space doing security, more preventative security from user protection, literally getting in between you and your MetaMask and potential malicious attacks and, and hack. All these things that happen that we're, we're still like when we use crypto every single day, there's still like a little bit of us that we get nervous that we're doing something wrong or that there's a hacker on the other side of this transaction or the smart contract, proactive threat detection, basically like red light, green light, yellow light, like we had on the early days of the internet. Ido, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me, Charlie. And thank you for the introduction. So we were going to do a different type of show today, but we're coming off the heels of this big ledger hack that happened actually just, just yesterday. You were telling me that you guys have been up all night dealing with that. And if I understand correctly, you guys were the ones who actually broke the vulnerability. Yeah, I think uh, we were definitely the first to detect it. We work with some of the biggest kind of wallets and dApps and companies in the ecosystem. And so through our work with them and through kind of the, the vast amounts of data that we're able to see, we were the first to notice the attack minutes after kind of the actual incident took yeah. place. And we immediately notified Ledger. We immediately notified every single blockade user and customer that their users were secure. And uh, and then we let the world know that they also needed to kind of watch out for, for what's happening. And this this basically affected so many different swap protocols and different dApps like SushiSwap, Kyber, Zapper, which is like an application that connects a lot of other applications. I didn't really look into specifically what happened, but what happened that affected such a large portion of our industry, a large portion that we thought was was more safe. Yeah, so I think this highlights, you know, what we at Blockade have known for a while, right? That while, you know, we're, we're big believers and kind of love the space, that there's a lot of things that are broken in the ways that users interact with, with crypto in general. And if we dive into specifically, you know, what happened, there was a code injection inside of Ledger's Connect Kit, which is a really popular library that different dApps embed into their front ends in order to interact with Ledger. This code injection happened due to an account takeover from a Ledger employee, but it's totally unrelated. And Another social engineering situation? I don't know if to comment on if it was actually social engineering okay. or if it, you know, it was a, if it was a malicious actor or something like that. But, but it was a compromise of the credentials of that same employee. I think you know, the, the jury's still out on exactly what happened. But essentially, Ledger's Connect Kit, which is, again, a popular kind of library that many, many dApps embed and use in order to connect with Ledger, was compromised, did have that code injection that was able to kind of embed a wallet drainer, a malicious wallet drainer, into many, many, many of these different sites, including something that you mentioned, right? SushiSwap, yeah. XYZ, which is, uh, you know, the Lens Protocol, uh, and a bunch, a bunch of others. And what ultimately happened was because of that, and again, this has nothing to do with kind of Ledger device sure, or anything yeah. like that, any single user that would have connected to those dApps was susceptible to these kind of malicious transactions that could have, in turn, drained their wallets. I'm always trying to look for the positivity in everything. Do you feel like the industry and the community itself reacted quickly enough and as quick as other industries would because we're such a transparent industry? Honestly, I think the reaction was, was pretty phenomenal. This yeah, could have been a massive, massive problem. The reasoning around the detection could have taken a lot longer. Like these would have been isolated and in, in individual kind of attacks on different front ends, and people may not have understood exactly where it all came from. But having that kind of understanding, having notified Ledger, 
having Ledger respond and update so quickly essentially caused the issue to kind of fade away in, in hours instead of, you know, it could have been days. I mean, this is a really interesting thing, right? Here we have an industry that because of the blockchain technology and because we even though we build on different blockchains and some of them are completely, you know, different models, account models, UTXO models. But because we spend so much energy and investment in connecting these things and connecting our industry together through a decentralized manner, that when things like this do happen, it seems like we've been very quick to like stop these things from from basically like taking a lot more money than they could have. So, you know, I think one thing about the, the beauty of the blockchain is that, you know, things are pretty public and things do happen in a public way, in a public setting. I think in this specific incident, that wasn't necessarily the case. Users were signing malicious transactions. They didn't necessarily understand that they were malicious or what exactly is happening. And you know, the connection between those transactions and the different dApps that they're coming from is very much disconnected. And so there is no real way to kind of connect these kind of without someone like Blockade that's kind of there to see it. More so is that, you know, we're a very developer-oriented community and that there's a lot of, you know, really sophisticated users that are kind of continuously up on Twitter and these kind of, you know, social networks, kind of like maybe the internet back in the day. And so there's a lot of these kind of super sophisticated users that are super passionate and super active. And so I think those are some of the reasons why messages like these spread so quickly. It's they're also incentivized. Because yeah, yeah, they're holding yeah, these yeah, tokens too, you know? These are people who are like, they're, they're holding these tokens, they're LPs of these swap protocols. So they're out there. It's almost yeah. like investor activist board. I always thought that you'd have like a transferring, like you'd have boards eventually would one day issue NFT and say, hey, we're doing our meetings on NFT on snapshot.org or whatever from now on. But it's not going to be that. It's going to be like the newer companies, the younger generations that are going to be starting their new billion dollar companies and they're going to be doing things differently. I know that's kind of a little bit off topic, but it's just one of these kind of like things that I think about. I guess I was, I was a little bit dismayed because I was going to do the show and I was excited to talk to you about like one of the biggest one of the biggest things that, that we focus on, you know, every year at the end of the year is I focus on like looking back where we were last year. And I will say this uh, from a positive side. Last year, we were going through like a really bad bear market and going into the holiday season, seeing all of the different family that we have all around the world. We were a little bit embarrassed to say that we were in Bitcoin or crypto last year, I would think. And now this year, going into like the bull market and all these really positive things, everyone's really excited and and really happy to like, you know, tell their family and their friends again, oh, I work in Bitcoin or crypto. But when these hacks and things like that happen from from two sides, it makes us look bad. But then you have like the SEC comes out this morning and denies like a, a rule for custody on Coinbase. And you and I know that their researchers that are in there writing these reports are citing these hacks and they're citing these things and are saying it's still the Wild West out there in crypto. So on one end, we look at these things as a positive. We're growing. We're like as this new industry, we're less than 20 years old, but we want to play with the big boys and have institutional capital. So like, how do we stop these things from happening? Yeah, it's a big question. I know it's impossible <laughs> to answer. It's a, it's, a, it's a big question, but but it's I think it's one that's at the heart of, you know, everything we do at Blockade. On one, you know, I see what it is that we're doing kind of for the industry of something that's, you know, much bigger than just protecting individual users here and now, but as a whole, enabling kind of the industry to grow and feel all that more safe. We work really heavily with consensus, right, through MetaMask. And they yeah. did this kind of independent study questioning, you know, about 10,000 different people outside of crypto, asking them, why don't they use crypto? Uh, and over 47% said, which was the largest category, said they don't use crypto because there's too many scams, right? Which is exactly, you know, kind of the reasoning that you're talking about. And so it's an unfortunate reality that these things do happen. And I think solutions like Blockade are, are necessary to make sure that they don't happen, right? 
yesterday's attack was was pretty horrific, but it could have been much, much, much worse, right? We saw kind of funds lost on the order of yeah. $600,000 and Blockade had protected over $2 million across the different you know wallets and users that, that we enable. So you have from the larger scale, but then you know I'll get an Uber and the Uber driver will tell me, yeah, my friend is launching this token. Can you look at it? And I'll look at the smart contract really quick. And you can very clearly see there that there's like a private key that controls the whole smart contract and all the money by the user. And there's no multi-signatures. There's no DAO. There's it, it, everything that they claimed on the website was just a big scam. It was like one person who, you know, eventually is going to raise enough money and, and rug pull. It's that that's still happening. Is there a way that these companies, we can force these companies to go through some sort of like, like remember PCI compliance or whatever, like some sort of standard of, of smart contract to prevent those type of like small level attacks from happening. You know, when we look at kind of even the traditional ecosystem and industry and kind of finance, right, there are still tons of scams, right? There are, appeals, yeah. are still tons of attacks. They're unrelated to crypto, right? You know, scammers and attackers will go where they can. I think it's our job to make sure that we have tools that are able to kind of protect users and make sure they can interact with these kind of ecosystems as we yeah. have tons of tools, right? You know, people wouldn't use their credit cards back in the day, right? I don't, I don't know if I you remember. had, you know, elderly parents or things like that. They were like, you're going to put your credit card online? Are you crazy? And, you know, we've come a really long way since then. And there was a lot of credit card fraud. Like, remember the early days of the internet? It was easy to go and find clean credit card numbers on the internet for free. Obviously, you would never use them because they would, but most people were desperate and they just start skimming. And so like the early days of the internet, it's like having your private keys just out there. It was the Wild West. It was. And, and the numbers of fraud were, were insane. And I think, you know, as we've developed more kind of fraud prevention technologies and things like that in traditional ecosystems, those have become safer and people have begun to trust them and kind of use them and operate yeah. with them online. And, and we need kind of really similar mechanisms in crypto to make sure users are safe. Once users feel safe, you know, I think that's what kind of will really enable us to kind of onboard many, many more users. At what point is like safety and user experience, it's like a lever. Yeah. The more safety you want to have, it's like the user experience goes down because you have to like, you know, thank you for downloading my crypto non-custodial app. Then you're like, what the hell is a non-custodial versus custodial? So now you have to know the difference. Then you're going to run into 12, 24 words. So you write them down, then it asks you to put them back in. And once you do that, then it's like, what blockchain network do you want to connect to? You're on Ethereum main, are you on Optimism? Do you want to connect to base? Wait, I thought I downloaded a Bitcoin wallet. So for me, I love all that. I want to get into the deep nitty gritty. I like connecting to my own node. I want to broadcast my own transaction. Hell, I'm signing things. I'm probably the only one. I sign transactions offline. I go online on a different air gap computer. I'm like old school. I, I remember the days when you're like, we would sign transactions in like a text file and then save it into a USB drive and then bring it over and paste it into blockchain.info where they had a free transaction broadcast tool. And like, that's the real way to do a crypto transaction. And that's super safe, right? You can do cryptographic proofs completely offline, but most people are not interested in that. So like, I asked this question to anyone who I believe is really on the forefront of the new user experiences that we're going to see in the next years ahead. What do you think is the way we're going to interact with crypto in the future? Will it be this MetaMask signing transactions, gas? whole thing? Do you think we'll see like maybe all in one wallet, like or the term wallet will change? Crazy thoughts on this. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of parallels to draw from the early days of the internet, right? The way you you described kind of interacting with crypto back in the day, I'm sorry, right? But to many users, sounds crazy. Yeah. You know, the only thing lacking in your description is like a tinfoil hat, right? Yeah. But obviously, you know, as someone kind of deep in the ecosystem, I totally understand. And I definitely understand, you know, the precautions you're putting in place to make sure you feel safe. When you look at the early days of the internet, 
if someone was was using, you know, an internet line, you could make a phone call, right? If someone was oh, kind yeah. of on their computer, you know, we didn't have mouses until like, so, you know, user experience and user interfaces change constantly as more and more users are onboarded and as kind of we tune and, and kind of uh, optimize these systems for more users. So I think it's it's naive to think that crypto won't change over time. Yeah. See how the internet changed over time. What will be that experience? And I'm selfishly asking because I want to invest in, in or start something in that. You know, a lot of people really believe that the future is like wearables. And so you have like the Apple Vision Pro that's coming out. Should we be developing apps for, you know, using your finger? And But that's kind of like more on the user side of things. What about the way that we even ship blockchains and kind of like expect the users to interact with them from the get-go maybe that will change yeah but people so, like tokens so yeah you know i think that the you know the future i envision i think the future that makes the most amount of sense is one where crypto is seamless right is one where we're using you know we call them dApps today right but i think we're dApps yeah. are just apps and when we have kind of payment rails become crypto rails because it's just a better more sophisticated piece of technology that can enable, you know, so much more. So yeah, people like tokens. I agree. I don't know. I fly a lot, right? So I like my frequent flyer miles and I like my other loyalty programs. And so having all those things tied in together into something that's that's on an open network that's easily transferable and easily adoptable and usable and having these kind of really great standards just makes kind of these existing applications all that more appealing to much, much more people. I completely agree. We're, we we like tokens. We're already used to them with airline miles and gift cards. So that's yep. definitely the next. Look what happened just, uh, I think it was a few days ago. Solana launched a phone that was $600, but came with like, at the time, $800 worth of Solana. So you, it's a free phone, but it was only like, you have to take, a, you're taking a risk on Solana. Anyways, the phone sold out like immediately and the price of Solana like tripled or something. So now, <laughs> but it's, but so maybe that's the future. Like you buy a device that interacts with crypto to, I don't know the answer to this, but I mean, that's why we podcast. We try to figure it out. I think more and more applications will kind of embed these kinds of technologies and users will just use them without even knowing them. Completely agree. Completely agree. So before Blockade, you worked with the Israeli government. What did you do over there? Yeah. So my background, my co-founder Roz, the rest of our team, kind of, we all served together um, during our, our military service and kind of Israeli cyber intelligence. For those unfamiliar, these are kind of, you know, these really, really kind of top-notch um, units, right? Basically taking kind of the smartest people in the country um, and pitting them against kind of super, super challenging cyber intelligence problems. You know, there's not much I can say about my time there, but, you know, yeah. uh, what we did, what the rest of our team, myself, the rest of the team, we worked on finding different vulnerabilities in modern operating systems, browsers, cryptographic implementations, things like that, trying to solve some of the, you know, most sophisticated and toughest security challenges in the world. And over the past year or so, we've been applying all that know-how over, you know, years and years and years of experience in these kind of units to solving some of the biggest challenges in crypto today. That's really cool. And it's really nice that that, like, you saw that on the forefront and you see those type of offices that are, like, taking crypto seriously, where from, like, the U.S. side, it took a very long time for the U.S. government to, like, even acknowledge Bitcoin and crypto was something worth even looking at. And they probably didn't develop those same type of teams until much later on. So it's that's pretty awesome. I should have I should have moved to Israel a lot a lot quicker, like we were talking about earlier, and and been on those teams. But but I'm happy where Bitcoin took me today. But hey, I really appreciate you taking the time and and coming on the show today and talking about everything that that's been going on the last couple of days. Do you have any thoughts going into 2024? Anything that that we didn't talk about? Yeah, you know, I remember um, you know late last year we had the Badger DAO hack. I don't know if you remember that one. And I think it was just around the same time now uh, that we have this yeah. kind of ledger incident. 
you know, I think these incidents are kind of great reminders of for us as an industry and how we kind of can step up and how we can be better. With Badger, we didn't have anything like Blockade. Right? Now with Ledger, we do, and we kind of see how great we were able to kind of protect users across the ecosystem. I think what I'm excited about in 2024 is how many more customers and users in the space, you know, step up what, they, what they're building and kind of understand kind of the importance of some of these kind of things that Blockade is able to protect users from. And that us as an industry as a whole can come back, you know, next Thanksgiving and say, you know, remember those scams that we had in crypto? Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Charlie.